If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. If you have a note sheet, I would encourage you to grab it because there's actually a chart in here that's helpful. If you don't have a note sheet, um, there's some on the back table perhaps that if they haven't been all taken, there's a chart here that I think would be helpful that we're going to get to in just a a little bit this morning uh, that's going to help us kind of delineate some comparisons throughout our study of Ephesians uh, over the last several months. But we pick up back in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning uh, where we left off last week in verse 10. It says, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having, and as shoes for your feet, having put on, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we began our study of this passage last week focusing on the words, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. This exhortation of the church is a reminder that the church is not in a state of vacation by the sea, or in a state of peace. It was not in the 80s, 60s when this letter was written by Paul to the church at Ephesus. It was a church that was under siege, a church that was facing constant persecution, a church whose pastor was imprisoned in Rome. So in no understanding should we step back and see, or think, or let our minds wander to believe that in the 80s, 60s, Less than 40 years later after Christ was crucified and raised from the dead was this a state of a church that was in vacation. It wasn't a state of peace. It was in a a state of war. It was a state under siege. This was a church facing battles. These were not calm days for the church, for the people of God, and neither today in 2019 do we find ourselves in a day of spiritual peace or vacation. We shouldn't let our minds wander to think that these are the best days that we can let our spiritual life at ease. But we should be standing alert. In fact, if we go back throughout biblical history, we are reminded that this book that God has given us about himself has been given to us as a warning from the very beginning of creation. We can read in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 that Adam and Eve are placed in the garden for what purpose? They're placed in the garden in the very best of circumstances to walk with God, to commune with God, to be the image bearers of God in this new creation that God has placed here, right? They're to be his image bearers, to represent the kingdom of heaven on earth, to reign and rule, to display the justice and righteousness of God to all that God had given them, to all that God was going to do. God was expanding his kingdom of heaven on earth. This is what we see illustrated in Matthew chapter 6 when when Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, pray that 
my kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we see in the very beginning, that's what the whole purpose of man coming was, to display the justice and righteousness of God on earth as it is in heaven, to be image bearers of that, of that to rule, displaying the justice and righteousness of God to all that God was doing on earth. But there was only one caveat to the plan that God had laid out in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. There was a tree, the tree of knowledge and good and evil that they were not to eat of. And here in this moment is where we are reminded that even in the best of circumstances, there is a battle going on. And what we might assume that in the bliss and the vacation by the sea, in the moment of spiritual peace, in Eden where all is grand, grand and wonderful, we read in, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say did God actually say this is a declaration of battle this is a declaration of war did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden this is questioning love this is questioning the sovereignty and the glory of God friends let's not just sit back and think this is just a petty debate this is nothing less than an absolute declaration of war perhaps you think I'm being a bit dramatic that's okay I live with three young girls there are the definition of dramatic but here in this moment, this is not dramatic. This is war. And while we, as modern men and women living in the West, do not think of evil spirits or demons that often, or prefer not to think about the presence of spiritual warfare because it makes us uncomfortable, right? We don't want to think about something that we can't control. We don't want to think about something that we can't define. We don't want to think about something that we can't put our hands on and stop. We live in the West. We live in a self-made, self-defined culture. We live in a do-it-yourself type of culture. We live in a climb the ladder, make yourself what you're going to be, build your house, put a fence around it, protect it, protect your family, lock it out who you don't want in, put an alarm on to keep people out when you're not there. We live in a culture that controls every part of the circumstances, controls how you do life. So when we start talking about spiritual warfare, evil, the culture, we don't like this conversation. Because it's something we can't control. We prefer not to think about this object of spiritual warfare because it makes us uncomfortable and it's okay to make us uncomfortable. Because if we're okay with evil, then we should have a whole other conversation later this afternoon. But the reality is if we claim that this book is true, if we claim that God is real and that God sent his son to earth to redeem us, to demonstrate his glory and sovereignty over all of creation, then at no point can we deduce that spiritual warfare is not real. Because if we claim that this book has the infallible, true, and sovereign word of God, and a book that God has given us to describe himself, to teach us about himself, to teach us how to worship him, to love him, to know him, how to be with him, about how God is in the business of redeeming us so that we might be with him in all eternity, then we have to believe and understand that spiritual warfare is taking place. Why? Because God is demonstrating and is showing us about the war that's taking place. He didn't cut the subject out of the book. He gave us the book with the subject in it so we can understand the context of what's going on and the battle for our souls. It's here. It's in the book. It's right here. So God begins himself to teach us about the war that's taking place in Genesis chapter 3, in the third chapter of the first book. 
It's an important subject because what happens here, the war leads to the expulsion from the garden. So we continue here briefly in Genesis chapter 3 and we begin to see the battle taking place. Genesis chapter 3 verse 14. And I hope this morning, perhaps we're not people who study the Bible in, in immense amounts or perhaps we're people who study the Bible greatly every day and you dive in and you, and you spend hours in the Bible. What I hope this allows us to do is, as a people and as a church is that we begin to look at the Bible through what God is saying to us and we dive in and we begin to, to expound upon how God is teaching us about himself and his kingdom and what he is doing in conquering evil and bringing us home to be with him. Because look at what happens in verse 14. This isn't just a cursory reading of the words, but this is what is happening. Because look at what happens in verse 14 of chapter 3 of Genesis. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Do we see the strike that happens here when God strikes down the serpent? And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Notice verse 15. We sometimes in, in theological service call this the proto-evangelon. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice this. I will put enmity. There is the battle. Enmity. I will put separation. But then he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the battle that's going to take place here. But this is also the declaration that Satan is going to be conquered by one that's going to come from who? The woman. Now who's going to come from the woman that's going to conquer Satan? Jesus. So here we have the battle plan. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that there's a battle going on. We see it in verse 14. Here in verse 15, what God says to, to uh, the serpent, he says, is, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put raging anger between you two, but one is going to come from you who's going to crush you, and who's that going to be? We can fast forward through the Bible, and we see in Matthew chapter 4, it's going to be Jesus. And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Notice this, cursed is the ground because of you. And in verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Friends, all of human history is wrapped up in this battle of sin, this deception, this accusation. This is war. The tempter comes with the goal to deceive us and to lead us astray. This leads us into destruction ultimately when we desire our whitewashed faith our golden ticket to heaven we miss the reality of what we are saved from and what we are ultimately saved to if there is no war there is no need of salvation yes we sin but why do we sin there is a battle going on for the souls of man there is a raging battle between light and dark remember Matthew chapter 5 we are to be light in the darkness. We are to be salt in the midst of decay. And we see it come full circle. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. A passage that we talk about often here at Booklift. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, when he first enters, enters his ministry, is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
And the tempter came to him and said, if, if, notice this. Notice the parallel between Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. Did God really say in Genesis chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4, if you are the Son of God? Do we, do we notice the parallels here? The deceiver in Genesis chapter 3, the deceiver in Matthew chapter 4, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if... Did God really say? He says again in Matthew chapter 4 verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, again it is written, You shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these, all these, notice this, what is all these? The kingdoms of the world. The qualifier here is the kingdoms of the world. What does the devil have control of? The kingdoms of the world in verse 8. He said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Perhaps we think this story in Matthew chapter 4 is a moralistic sermon of how we should, could, might, ought to do life better. How we could not be so prideful. How we should be more gracious and humble. And those things are good things. Those surely are good things. But that is not the message of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is pointing us backward to what happened in Genesis chapter 3, reminding the world that there is a very evident battle going on. And in this moment, Jesus is stepping forward into the battle. He is stepping into the battle. He's not surrendering to the enemy, but he is standing strong. Jesus is the new and the greater Adam, declaring victory. Did God really say, if you are the Son of God? Jesus is the new and greater Adam declaring victory. When we think about religion, when we think about that golden ticket theology of if you say this, if you do this right, you will be with God forever, walking the aisle, getting eternal security. Let us not forget about the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus came to teach. They had become very good at making a Jewish religion. They had so many laws that they couldn't remember them or keep them. They turned the temple into a money-making factory because you couldn't keep the law, so everybody was a sinner and everybody's a sinner, so you're going to have to keep buying sacrifices at the temple because your sacrifice is not good enough. So you come and you turn it in for another one and you buy one at the temple. So the temple, what is the temple? It's the greatest world bank that ever existed. And this isn't mocking, this is truth. We find this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Why? Because Jesus comes in and he overturns the tables in the temple. Why? Because he's throwing out religion in the temple. But in this moment, Jesus humbles himself, steps onto earth, and reminds all of humanity that this is not about religion. Friends, this is not about religion. This is not about rules. But this is about the kingdom of heaven. It's not about a set of rules that we can't follow. This is not about giving up and making money. But this is about the kingdom of heaven. This is about knowing God and this is about being known by God. This is what all of Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 is about. It's about knowing God and being known by God. What Jesus demonstrates in Matthew 4 is not 
religion, but it's reliance, it's trust, and it's worship. The antithesis of what we saw in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus stands strong in the strength of the Lord. Hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In Genesis chapter 3, we saw a failure to trust, a failure to worship, a failure to recognize the sovereignty of God, and rather a desire to be like God and to be their own God. And here in Matthew 4, we see the glory of God lifted high as Jesus stands strong in the strength and the glory of God. Think about this for a moment. In Matthew chapter 4, if you and I were there fasting 40 days out here with no access to anything else and the tempter comes along to us and says, hey, you have the power to turn this rock into bread, we'd be like, okay, bread. We're going to be having a feast But all the purpose of us being in the desert for however long God places in the desert is for us to feast on him, to trust him, to know him and to worship him. But think about it. In our rationalization, how often in our lives do we say we can do this for ourselves? We can... Friends, this is what it's about. So as we come to this topic of spiritual warfare, this topic that perhaps we're not comfortable with or familiar with, but the reality of our faith is that we have been brought from darkness to light. We must remember the severity and the seriousness of the subject as Jesus knelt in the garden to pray. Just before his arrest, he prayed for his followers that they would be kept from the evil one in John chapter 17. He's about to be arrested. Who's he praying for? He's praying that we would be kept from the evil one. He's praying that we would be one with the Father as he was. This is a serious topic here. In his teaching in Luke chapter 21, what is he doing? He's warning that persecution and serious persecution would come. That brother would turn against brother. That family would turn against family. Why? Because this is something that is serious. It's not a topic that we should take lightly. So for friends, perhaps this is a topic that we do not address enough because we don't fully understand it because it's not something that leaves us with that feel-good feeling when we leave to go to lunch today. It's not a topic that we're going to share over pie at the end of the dinner table. But this is something that is important to the church. And Paul is exhorting the church to stand firm. Look at verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and against the cosmic powers. That word is just fun. We think cosmic powers, we think the kids have been reading the comic books too much. But against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and in the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. Just look at verse 11 with me for a moment. We begin to recognize that this is no small task. There is no retreat here. There's no stepping back. There is no taking comfort, but rather this is an exhortation to stand. So we are to what? Stand firm. If we jump down uh, again real quickly into verse 13, notice again he says, take up the whole armor guard that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore having fast, fastened on the belt of truth. What is the message here? Stand. Stand. 
It's not one of those, well, I'm having a bad day, I just need to take a break, or things aren't going my way, or I've been out in the desert for 40 days, and I'm, a, I'm alone, and I'm not hearing from God in the moment, or whatever, and I just need, I just need bread. And no, it's to stand firm. So remember what we just read in Matthew chapter 4 of Jesus in the wilderness, fasting, hot, and tired. We don't lean on our own understanding. Rather, we are standing. We're standing firm, even in gaping thirst, or unending thirst and hunger, the message of the kingdom is that we stand. We don't try to figure this out for our own. Why? Because we don't lean on our own understanding. We trust the word of God in 2 Timothy. We don't try to come to our own solution. This isn't a do-it-yourself type of faith. We have the word of God on our side. We don't bow to some other way or other, wor or other than worship. Why? Because the devil is the one who schemes. If That's the whole message we have here in Ephesians chapter 6. To stand against the schemes of the devil. If we were just to research some of the names used in the Bible to describe the devil throughout Scripture, we would find roughly 19 different names. Now, I took the, the, some time this week to do this, so I'm going to list them Lucifer which means son of the morning in Isaiah 14, 12. This is when he fell. Satan is listed 56 times. 56 times. Which Peter warns us we're to be sober-minded because the devil prowls like a roaring lion. Devil, listed 35 times beginning in Genesis chapter 3 going all the way to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Serpent, dragon, Beelzebub, Belial, which means good for nothing. That's a good name. Tempter. Sorry, commentary here. Uh, wicked, evil, lawless one. Prince of this world. Prince of the power of the air. God of this world. Deceiver, accuser, angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11. Murderer, father of lies, roaring lion, destroyer. And that's just a cursory research of the different names or attributes given to Satan. So all of this leads us back to the first part of this verse. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Nineteen different names or attributes, descriptions, or identifiers throughout this book for the one who seeks to destroy us. So it's in this light that Paul exhorts us to put on the whole armor of God. Notice that he exhorts the church to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Why? What is this armor? Well, friends, think about this for a moment. This isn't a new concept that Paul is making up or a new illustration, although when you think about the context of what Paul is writing in, Paul is guarded by a Roman centurion while he's under arrest, and they're probably wearing their armor as they guard him, and he's addressing the warfare that the church is facing. While it seems like it would be nice that he'd be writing about armor, as he's sitting here looking at a centurion, he says, I'm going to address the church in their warfare and I'm going to describe it in the form of armor because I'm sitting here looking at this centurion who's just sitting here staring at me right all the time and I'm just going to address it this way. That's not exactly how this came to be about. We can trace the language of armor back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59, in a, in a time of full evil and full oppression, Isaiah 
speaks of God who cannot, who will not be hindered by evil, who will not be hindered by the darkness of the hearts of man, but rather what we see in Isaiah 59 is Christ who in verses 16 to 21 finds no man worthy to be able to redeem the people, no man righteous, no man worthy. So Christ in verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 59, listen to what he says. He says he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him to salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothes and, and wrapped himself in a zeal as a cloak and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions declare the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. So notice here, the language of armor goes back to Jesus rescuing his people in a time where oppression and evil was the constant in Isaiah. So what is the whole armor thing about? We put on Christ. We put on the fullness of Christ. We put off the old self and the old way of living. We put off the old way of pursuing things in this world, things that lead to death, things that lead to self-exaltation. We put on Christ. We put on his righteousness. Surely we have all heard sermons that list each piece of armor and give some significance, but Paul is not giving us an allegory here. But rather he is pointing us to Christ. He is saying we put on Christ. We put on all of Christ in him and through him and only in him and through him will we be able to stand in this battle. Will we be able to endure in the strength of the Lord? Remember the qualifier to the statement that says be strong in the strength of the Lord. How are we strong in the strength of the Lord? As we put on all of Christ. Because it's not about putting on a suit or a coat of armor and then standing thinking you're going to be good enough to take what the devil brings at you is you put on all of Christ and then you can stand against anything. Because some piece or chink of armor is not going to take what the world is going to bring at you but you put on all of Christ and you got it. You're all good. If you, if you, if you have the notes this morning, look at this, this, this chart that we see illustrated in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians alone. Once we were dead... Is what we see Paul remind us in Ephesians chapter 2. But now we are alive. Once we were under the dominion of Satan. Now we are seated in the heavenly realms. Once we were objects of wrath. But now we are his glorious inheritance. Once we were separate from God. But now we are brought near as his children. Once we were foreigners. But now we are fellow citizens and heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Once we were aliens, but now we are members of the household of God. Once we denied the gospel, but now we understand the mystery of the gospel. Once we were infants in chapter 4 verse 14, but now we are maturing in Christ to become more like Christ. Once we were in the old self, pursuing old ways, the the frivolous ways of the world, walking around in darkness. But now we are in the new self, walking in the light and pursuing the light of Christ. Once we were in darkness, and now we are in the light. 
Friends, look at this chart. Think about this chart, how it applies to your life because it is when we remember the gospel, the transforming power of God in and through us that we can stand in confidence, that we can worship in confidence, that we can know confidently, not because we are good people, not because we are great people, not because we are the hero of this story, but because we have been redeemed and Christ is the hero of our story. When we put on the full armor of God, it is not about how we fight. It is not about what we do, but are about remembering the war is over. About remembering the one we fight for, the one we represent. Remembering that the war has been won and it has been won in and through Christ. So it's not about what we can do or how we can win, but about remembering it is won in and through Christ. So friends, let us hear and be reminded of the prayer that we alluded to earlier this morning in John chapter 17, verse 9. And he says, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Notice this, I have guarded them and not let one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture, scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your world, your word and the word has... The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask this for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Friends, the urgency of the battle is so great that the prayer of Jesus is that we would be kept from the evil one in verse 15. That we would be one. And he doesn't just pray it for those disciples who are currently believing, but he prays for us. Look at verse 20. But for those who will believe in me through their word. That's for you and I sitting here in 2019. That we would be one in the Father. Let us not take lightly the battle that we have been commissioned to engage in. We're not to disengage, but we're to engage. When we read the words At the end of the Great Commission, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we hear the words of Jesus, I will send you an even greater helper who will dwell with you, who will be with you forever. And John 14 and 15, these are not just hallmark moments of the faith. But rather, Jesus preparing disciples, preparing the church for the battles that lie ahead. We are not to go this life alone. And if we are truly followers of Jesus, and we are truly engaged in the battle, there are no sidelines for the life of a disciple. There's no stepping back and, and saying, this is my retirement. There's no being done. Let us be reminded today, this week, in every moment of our lives, that we're engaged. 
We are to stand. We are to stand firm. We are to stand having fastened on the truth. We are to stand. For we read in verse 12, we're reminded that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. So we don't have the privilege of becoming numb or blinded to the reality that Satan is at work through the dark forces that are in the world before our eyes. Evil leaders. False pursuits. Poverty, persecution, genocide, injustice, racism, promiscuity, materialism. Friends, the evil one who parades as an angel of light blinds us to the devastating effects of what we see happening in our world. Jesus himself calls us to be salt and light in the darkness, to expel the putrefaction that we find in the world, for we are surrounded by it on all sides. Misplaced sexual desires, the pursuit of personal wealth and prosperity, making a greater name for ourselves, making a better life for our children or even for our church. We must lean in hard to the arms of Christ daily, recognizing and desiring to be covered by his love, daily desiring to be ambassadors of his name, not seeking a greater name for ourselves, not seeking a greater name for our children or a greater inheritance, but rather seeking to display the justice and the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven to this world. That should be our desire. That should be our end goal. That should be our mission. When people say, what is your mission in life? Is to display the justice and righteousness of God to all we come in contact with. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we can forsake all else. As we can give up all else in knowing that if we lose it all, if we're faithful in, in displaying the justice and righteousness of God, as we have lived to the fullness of what God has placed us on earth to do. That is our mission. When we think about who we are and where we live in this culture, how God has allowed us to be born into the West, if there's one lesson in all of the Bible that perhaps that in the West, a church in the West needs to be reminded of, perhaps it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And I don't mean that as a slam on the church, and I don't mean that as a slam on being born in North America or in the United States, but think about this with me this morning. This is meant to encourage us and to remind us of the fact that we are at war, but we also have a deceiver, and a deceiver who keeps saying, did God really say, or if you are the Son of God, a deceiver who says that to the face of Jesus. And if he's going to say that to the face of Jesus, imagine how he seeks to deceive us today, how he desires to deceive us in the moments, in the small moments, in the big moments in our life and the way that we handle our business affairs and the way we lead and love our children and the way we lead and love our spouses and the way we do our work in our business places. If, if, there's, if there's a story and this isn't meant as a slam on anybody here or any other church in this valley or any other church in this, in this country but if there's a story that we should be daily reminding ourselves of as a church in the West is the Tower of Babel. Why? Because they sought to defend themselves. They sought to build themselves up and to make themselves a great fortress. They sought to build themselves up a great name so that all would see them and know who they were. They sought to make themselves a city that would reach the heavens and what happened? They failed to worship God. They lifted themselves up as God and they brought on themselves ultimate destruction. 
because they lost focus on God and put all their focus on building themselves up great, greater and higher and more lofty and they lost the purpose. The people of God lost the focus on God and lost their worship on God because they were building up a city and a nation and a protection that was focused on themselves instead of focused on God and God spread them across the world because they missed the point. They lost their focus on worship while building a city that was to reach up to the heavens. Friends, when we lose sight of our purpose and our mission of being image bearers of the kingdom of heaven, of being lead worshipers to all of creation, that is our ultimate deception. That is our deception. Perhaps here in this town, in this city or where we live, we don't see, we don't see spiritual warfare like they do in East Asian cultures or in Central Asian cultures. We don't see the presence of the battle like they might there. Maybe it's because we're more easily deceived in what we might need or desire in our lives. Or maybe it's because deception just takes a whole different form in how we do life. Friends, anything that distracts us from being lead worshipers for all of creation, anything that distracts us from displaying the justice and righteousness of God to all of creation, that is deception. That is the, the battle that we face. Have we allowed the accuser to take a foothold in our lives to squelch our confidence in the gospel? when we face uncertainty in life, when we face struggles in life, when we face pain, how do we respond? Do we respond with the confidence of the gospel? Do we, find, do we respond in the knowledge of the hope and the power of the gospel? Or do we shirt back and say, I'm going to make this what I desire to be and who and what I desire to be. I'm going to make my name great. I'm going to make my whatever it is Great. And do we miss the gospel? The same could be true in our lives if we say, well, I have done blank. I love Jesus. I know I've been redeemed. I know I'm a child of God, but I have sinned in blank ways. And there's no way that I can adequately serve the kingdom because of what I've done, friends. He's a deceiver and he's an accuser. And the accuser that seeks to push us down to say that we can't adequately serve the kingdom because of whatever blank it is in your life, friends, that is just as strong a power in our lives as us being deceived from the gospel. Regardless of what has occurred in our lives to make us feel that we are inadequate to serve the power and the kingdom of heaven, that is an accusation from none other than Satan himself. That is, this isn't a license to go sin and say, I can do what I want and then I can keep going. No, that's not what we see in Romans chapter 6. But we know in 1 John chapter 3 is we have one, who, an advocate who stands on our behalf before the throne of heaven that says, this is my child and you can't punish this sin twice. And it is in that knowledge and that glory and that confidence and that power that we stand together today to know that we have still one purpose and that is to display the justice and righteousness and the glory of the gospel to all peoples and all creation to be lead worshipers for one 
purpose for the kingdom of heaven. So church, today let us be a people of God who even in the midst of the war we remember that it is through the death and resurrection that we have been made alive. We read in 2 Corinthians, as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, chapter 4, verse 16, he says, So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, it's not might, but is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are to be seen, but to those that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hear the words of Paul this morning. The things that are wasting away are transient, but the things that are unseen, the hope that we have in the gospel is eternal. Let's pray together this morning.